to Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. My name's Adam Davis, and joining me this week through Miracle of Satellite Technology, it's Emily Benita. Hi, Emily. How's it going? Hello from Tier 4 in Glasgow. We've gone back <laughs> into um, a Scottish for lockdown, and it's mm-hmm. cold and dark, and it seems like all I'm doing with my time is trying to keep going with this temp job I'm doing remotely and watching things through screens. So mm. what what's what's different? Plus change, comme si, comme ça. How are you, Ed? Yeah, I'm kind of much the same. Um I mean Florida isn't in any stage of lockdown because our governor is an absolute idiot. But <laughs> you know, I personally have you know remained in my lockdown until uh, since March and my work has no plans to have people coming back until some point next year because they're taking it very seriously if uh-huh. our government officials are not. So, like you, it's been very much a case of being inside a lot, except for, you know, once or twice a day when I go out for a nice long walk, trying to trying to cut down a little bit on my screen time, as I mentioned last week, that uh, I deleted the Twitter app from my phone, although it did come back because I had to see what all these fleets were about. Uh, oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, in the time that you took a break from Twitter, Ed, they managed mm-hmm. to make it worse. Yeah, although I did enjoy scrolling through some people's initial fleets about how they were terrible. Mm. But then, you know, once they've been up for like 24 hours, then it goes to the like unironic fleets of just people being like, oh yeah, this is the thing that we use now. Now, now uh, Twitter has stories <laughs> like instagram and also no one quite seems to understand what they're for but we have them anyway uh it did give me an opportunity to post a picture of bob hoskins from the long good friday saying fleets of shittum which (laughs) i'm always i'm always looking for an opportunity to post pictures of bob hoskins in the long good friday um but yeah so i've been trying to like reduce screen time and, and failing terribly at it but uh i did finally get around to watching a movie from last year that we discussed kind of in passing on this show once or twice because of the trailer and because of one actor's pronunciation of the word ghouls uh, <laughs> which was the dead don't die the jim jarmusch zombie movie that came out last year and has this incredibly stacked cast of people like adam driver and bill murray and chloe sevigny and uh tom waits tilda swinton carol kane in a small role uh uh, the RZA working for a company called WooPS, which I thought was a funny guy. <laughs> <laughs> that every time they showed the logo for that, I thought, oh, that's, that's, a solid, that's a solid joke. WooPS uh, like would have sorted out the election, no doubt. Mm. Oh, yeah, they, pr- they protect your packages. <laughs> so there's also, like, you know, some newcomers to his, his stable of his rep company of people he likes to work with, like uh, Caleb Landry-Jones, who like, shows up and is like, oh yeah, of course, he's a perfect choice to be in a Jim Chamu's film. Mm-hmm. Uh, Selena Gomez, who shows up in a small role. You know, like, so there's a lot of, of like, stuff to like about it. There's some good jokes, but like, I just came away from thinking that it was a little too glib for how dark it is, because it is, you know, it's a zombie movie. A lot of people end up dead. It's very indebted in tone to 
George Romero, and there's like numerous references in it specifically to uh, Night of the Living Dead, and that's fine. I'm happy with a dark movie and a grim movie and zombie movies by the very nature kind of lend themselves to that, but there's also this kind of like winkingness to it, like Adam Driver and Bill Murray break the fourth wall a few times, and it gives this like, and the ending has this like real shrug of a late film plot twist to it that really does kind of make you think that no one involved was that invested in the movie like it seems like more of a lark and you know an excuse for some people to slaver on the zombie makeup or whatever which is like fine there's there's worse reasons to make a movie but considering the talent involved and considering how much generally i like jarmusch's genre exercises like my favorite of his films is down by law i really enjoyed only lovers left alive you know like i i like it when he dips his toe into these kind of like genre exercises and applies his particular brand of kind of arch coolness to it but here it just kind of didn't seem to work and it all felt a little bit sour but there's some good good gags and i would recommend it to people who are like jarmusch completists but yeah it just kind of like it was one of those things where i was so jazzed for it last year and when the initial round of reviews were fairly middling on it I kind of like lost interest in watching it now I'm kind of like yeah the reviews were were pretty much spot on. It's a shame when that happens and I think the glibness or the awareness of the construction of how characters are cognizant of what's happening you either Mm. have to really lean into it or have a thread to it you can't just kind of scatter a few things in and think that that's a theme <laughs> like I think Lynch does it really beautifully in Twin Peaks The Return in kind of mm. everyone's sort of growing awareness and all sort of like watching each other and I mean I wax lyrical about that on pretty much my first appearance on, <laughs> on the podcast so I won't <laughs> that's, that's available for everyone to listen to and I was thinking in terms of like kind of genre films set in small towns like I watched The Wolf of Snow Hollow Jim Cummings' most Mm. um, recent offering. And that had a nice balance of being a little bit quirky, but the stakes were still very much there. Like, the two Mm. worked together well, like one didn't cancel the other out. Yeah, I think that gets at the heart of why I really, like, like, just didn't work for me with The Dead Don't Die, is, like, there really aren't any stakes to the whole thing. Like, everyone... Some of the characters are, like deathly afraid for their lives like Chloe Sevigny's character as someone a member of the police force who is kind of like one of the last to find out what's happening like she just seems incredibly traumatized by the whole thing and that just doesn't really chime well with the tone of the rest of it and particularly like the tone of what Bill Murray and Adam Driver are doing where they're playing it basically is like yeah we know we're in a zombie movie like and that just like completely takes the air out of the whole thing like people are getting eaten left and right and you don't really care that much and also it like literalizes the george a romero dawn of the dead thing of like you know people return to the places they lived in life and kind of like do the same things they did because they're essentially zombies already you know which in dawn of the dead was like you know kind of felt like a fresh bit of satire and i still think resonates because it you know, it doesn't kind of hit the hammer too home and be like so explicit of it. Whereas in the Dead Don't Die, like zombie Iggy Pop shows up at a diner and starts saying coffee, 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 coffee. And it's just kind of like, 
this, you know, doesn't really feel like you're leaning a little too hard into the whole, like, modern culture is terrible approach to, to this story that you're telling. It kind of feels like you're over-egging it a little bit. So we'll go on to the news for this week. Uh, it's a fairly quiet week, but there were two stories that struck you and I as, as fairly significant, the first of which was the news that uh, Conan O'Brien is ending his talk show, which has been on TBS for 10 years, and he will also be stepping away from the late-night talk show game, something that he's been involved in for 27 years, since 1993, after he took over Late Night from David Letterman, following all of the fallout of Johnny Carson leaving and the, the battle for Jay Leno, uh, for that spot between Jay Leno and David Letterman. And... It feels like an end of an era because of how long he's been doing it, of how long he has tried to remain kind of on the forefront of late-night comedy and how much of an institution he feels. You know, now that he's kind of like the only one left from that era of late-night hosts, but also, you know, if you look 10 years ago when him getting The Tonight Show and then The Tonight Show being taken away from him and how that was like a major story that occupied like so much attention for months as the kind of like back and forth started kind of going on there and how like his leaving got became the subject of like a documentary and all this sort of stuff it really indicates just how rapidly like late night television of that sort has completely faded from relevance because like now it's like oh Conan ends his show and it's not it's like a major deal to comedy fans the people who followed his career people who have like know about the history of television but it still feels like a fairly minor thing to occur in the broader entertainment ecosystem completely i think i was aware of conan o'brien being a staple in late night when he guested on the simpsons which he used to write for Mm. like i don't think many people get to say that and where bart tries to do the dance and he's like no 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 only i do the dance and then it's a really beautiful bit of animation (laughs) as he does his own his own dance and he seems to be of the range of talk show hosts the one who hasn't really adapted to the current landscape like he was Mm. that kind of last bastion like occasionally you'd see like team conan things online but you know it's much more about seth myers colbert trevor noah even and they've all had something a little bit different going for them I mean, obviously, you've got um, Jimmy Kimmel and uh, Jimmy Fallon, your Jimmies. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, it's still really homogenous, isn't it? And it would be interesting to see Mm. what Conan O'Brien does next. But he is like the last of the last guard. And like you say, it is a more indicative of an end of an era. And it's not going to be the end of Conan's career by any stretch of the imagination. But like, what will take up that space? Is there a need Mm. anymore for this kind of... Because a late night talk show is essentially a vehicle for promotion. Like it's yeah. like, oh, let's meet these people, and and it's a it's a magazine, and it's mainly adverts, whether you realise it or not. And mm. in terms of the world that we're moving into, I don't know how um, how viable that is now. And again, like. 27 it's a generation's worth almost that he's been doing this one thing for Mm. and i think that 
has started to be reflected in some of the stuff he's done outside of the talk show because he also has a show which he's continued he's, I think he's going to continue doing with TBS where he does like a, a travel show where he would like travel to different parts of the world and kind of like do things like I think he did one where he went to Japan and they had loads of stuff or maybe that was part of his talk show where he went to like Tokyo to get f- <laughs> filmed for his cameo in Death Stranding where he's like you know he meets Kideo Kojima and stuff which was very very funny and very weird and but but that kind of like speaks to maybe a certain restlessness with him and the fact that in recent years he has tried to do more stuff like oh you know we're going to take the show to a different country and do shows there for a week or whatever or you know going to comic-con and doing things was like a big part of their yearly schedule like in the summer they would go and do shows at comic-con and they had a big following there and what he's planning to do on his next show which is going to be on hbo max is it's going to be kind of more of a variety show which maybe kind of like hints to the fact to, to a sense that you know he'd kind of said all he needed to say and done all he needed to do with his show on tbs and with like his many decades of work in the late night space that maybe he wants to try and do something new where every week they'll be trying out different things which you know probably feels like a better fit for someone like him who's always seemed like a bit of a arrestive spirit uh, which like I think really helped set him apart in late night compared to some of his more kind of staid contemporaries mm. and the other kind of big story this week which broke a couple of days ago was the news that Wonder Woman 84 which was scheduled to come out in theatres in December and is going to still come out in theatres in December but is also going to come out on HBO Max on the same day uh, which uh, came a bit as, as a bit of a surprise because obviously we've been having this song and dance for the whole year of these major movies that were meant to come out in spring or the summer being pushed back because the studios don't want them to you know go straight to streaming and lose out on a potentially huge stream of revenue and you know like of the movies that have been delayed there seemed to be you know a tier of them that you just thought yeah this doesn't seem like it'll go to streaming like something like bill and ted face the music you think i can see that going to streaming because it's kind of a, a lower budget movie and the, the risks are lower but you know no time to die black widow wonder woman these all seemed like movies that would never ever you know they wouldn't see a streaming service until like a year after they'd come out in theaters they'll just keep getting delayed until it's safe for people to see movies in big numbers again so it kind of feels like a bit of a surprise that that warner brothers would take this step with Wonder Woman 84 like it feels like a pretty significant choice on their part and like again you know one of those helpful occasional reminders that yeah the pandemic's still going on everywhere (laughs) it's not uh gonna be back to normal for a a good little while I think it's interesting that they've also made the move not to charge extra like Disney Mm. did with Mulan um so it feels like a real this is on us and mm-hmm. I think probably of all the films to choose to do it with, you know, the kind of message and theme of the film is Diana's kind of benevolence mm-hmm. <laughs> to uh, to humans. So, yeah, interesting move. And I think probably for the best at this point and to see how eight months in certain films are i think with more progressive themes are in in alignment with the message and and trying to be like look after each other you know because i was thinking about this 
in terms of Bond and mm. that they're still holding on for a big screen cinema release because the majority of their audience want to go and see Bond in the cinema. Yeah. You know, Bond is not a progressive thing. And even though that it, they've started to try and get that in, in terms of, you know, saying that he's a dinosaur and obsolete, he still wins. Mm. He doesn't change. That's the yeah. whole point about Bond. So to be like, oh, we're, we're bringing it to you and all this kind of stuff. I mean, you know, Phoebe Waller-Bridge sort of gave the script a polish up, but there's only so much wiggle room you can have. And I think that's it. They're just you know, it'll be next year in in cinemas as soon as mm. it can happen. Yeah, and I think in the case of Wonder Woman, it kind of solves two problems for Wonder Brothers, which is that on the one hand, they have this like big expensive movie that they have been keeping out of cinemas for eight months and that they clearly want to put out, but then they're running in the risk of being like, well, when do we put it out? Do we end up having to put it out against like, bigger movies that it can't compete with or do we end up having to like cannibalize our own schedule so like they would rather not have it on their plate but also it's a really good choice of movie to put out to try and entice people to get hbo max mm. because that service launched earlier this year and it's hasn't been like a rip-roaring success i mean it, it, i think it's done okay it's not done like quibi but at the same time, you know, it's part of a big media conglomerate and, you know, it can probably afford to kind of have a, a rough first year or so before they start to worry about it. But the problem with that service is that, you know, it kind of hasn't had that many big exclusives that would make people really want to check it out. Like, you know, they could advertise American Pickle as much as they wanted to and you know that's a, a fun good movie but you know it's not necessarily the sort of thing that gets people to say yeah i'll sign up for another streaming service in the middle of this you know economically devastating pandemic <laughs> so something like this where it's literally like hey you know this like big massive blockbuster that everyone's really excited for and you know a lot of people liked the previous movie in the series of you can watch it at home, doesn't cost you anything other than to sign up for this streaming service. And then, you know, once people get in the door and like, oh, you know, they've got a really good selection of films on there. They've got, you know, all of the HBO stuff. You know, it makes sense to keep the subscription going. But like, yeah, this seems like a somewhat fortuitous thing for them that they can be like, yeah, you know, you can sign up for our service and you get to watch this movie that uh, you otherwise aren't going to have a great chance to see for a while because... Uh, it's probably not going to be playing in a huge number of theatres. Mm. So we'll go on to our main topic for this week, and it is autumnal movies. You and I uh, have talked a little bit about doing this kind of like subject in the past, mainly stemming from talking about things like When, ha when Harry Met Sally, uh, movies like that, you know, the movies that have a feel of certain times of the year and i thought that now seeing as you know we are firmly into the autumn months now would be the perfect time to talk about movies that remind us of autumn that have the kind of like the feel of autumn to them and as i said like the the, the top one i have on my list is when harry met sally largely because of the poster which i think is also used on the dvd boxes which is billy crystal and meg ryan kind of like looking at each other in these kind of like beautiful fall colors you know it's all 
reds and browns and yellows and it's like got this incredible warmth to it but the movie itself also like most of the major events and it take place in the autumn and winter months you know it opens with them driving to new york where meg ryan is going to start a journalism school so presumably that's them driving up in the sort of late summer early autumn months and then so many of the other events take place around big holidays in the autumn months as well so that's like one of the movies that i think most reminds it just on an aesthetic level if i think of what does autumn mean to me it's you know billy crystal and meg ryan in like big comfy looking sweaters completely and i was thinking about what it means and i think so much of what autumn is in cinema is actually a feeling Mm. and that real sense of coziness that's almost visceral Mm -hmm. because of course when harry met sally actually covers years and Mm. goes through various different seasons i think it there's something autumnal because the knitwear is quite so iconic yeah like they really start dressing when autumn comes (laughs) around but i think autumn films are really interesting because it's that kind of slide into the festive season so you've Mm. got but Halloween films we don't think of as autumn, even though <laughs> it's the major autumn holiday. And then Christmas is obviously winter. But I think the interesting thing about when I started to think about autumn films that really struck with me, uh, struck me and stuck with me, there's the unique American perspective that there's Thanksgiving, which mm, is sort yeah. of a countdown to Christmas, but it's peak kind of fall tentpole that happens and realizing that thanksgiving is often about reflection and gratitude and of course you know the slaughter of indigenous people Mm. but that's a time where you know there's a good opportunity to have people come together like as a as a sort of MacGuffin, as an inciting incident, you know, Thanksgiving could be a pressure cooker. But you've also got kind of, hol- it's another holiday where people might go to the cinema <laughs> and have this kind of thing reflected back to them. And, but, you know, the the first film I'm going to start with is kind of a the doy, but uh, Autumn in New York with mm. Richard Gere, Winona Ryder in Unfortunate Age Gap Terminal romance in more ways than one and i always forget that it's directed by joan chen of of Mm, twin peaks and illustrious sort of amazing american chinese actress and it is just like ridiculously plush melodrama but oh doesn't new york look beautiful with all the trees and the leaves yeah i think in in kind of thinking about some of the movies in that kind of yeah what 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 are autumnal movies i kind of started thinking in my mind you know are they set in the autumn or are they just shot in the Northeast? Because like New York, New England, like that region of the country, they so vividly show off autumn because of mm. their so they've got so many deciduous trees and you do real get you get that sense of the seasons changing there more visibly than in a lot of other places. And there is that whole like culture of you know people driving up to go and watch the leaves change and things like that it, it's kind of like this real part of the culture up there that you don't really see in a lot of other parts of 
the country or really other parts of the world there is just something about the autumn and you know the onset of the latter months of the year that feels really palpable i think in those parts of the world in, in that part of the country and also in terms of like thanksgiving movies i think it's really interesting that if you try and think of like what is a thanksgiving movie they all kind of feel like just secular versions of christmas movies yeah in that so many of them have similar themes similar plot ideas you know if you look at something like planes trains and automobiles which is probably the best thanksgiving movie or, or certainly one of the best you know that's all about trying to get home for the holidays about family in multiple different ways and you know connection between other people it's about the stress of the holidays and you know that how much how much they can just kind of like pile anxiety upon people as they're trying to kind of live up to this image of what a holiday should be and which feels particularly uh resonant i think this year of all years as people are you know trying to make that decision do they have thanksgiving this year do they travel home to see family as long as they take all their precautions they just do it over zoom and things like that and like all of those films are uh, themes are ideas that you also see expressed so often in christmas movies and you know they have similar you know kind of like tropes of the family coming together a big meal and things like that but you know jesus isn't really part of the the conversation or it's not like because all of the celebrations around it have kind of like grown up uh, kind of off to the side of all that sort of stuff so it's kind of interesting to think about those sort of movies as being like really indicative of like a lot of kind of like big universal themes and i think that's probably why those movies i think resonate outside of the u.s even though you know canada is the only other country that has a thanksgiving that i know of yeah um, that that follows similar traditions even if it's not at the same time whereas like i know so many people in the uk who like love planes trains and automobiles even though the, the holiday it suggests it, it celebrates is so alien for sure and i felt that way watching pieces of april mm. and that the main thrust of that is just bringing a an estranged family together and yeah. the uh sort of conflicts in their lifestyles and really the only thing that i know about thanksgiving is the food Mm, and yeah. so really it's just oh it's kind of a fancy meal <laughs> there's not really a lot much more to it than that the only sort of thanksgiving film that i think manages to be you know not really in the spirit of the holiday is the ice storm mm, oh yeah um because that has i mean it's 97 spoilers perhaps but that it is quite so bleak and that mm. everyone is sort of shocked out of their kind of 70s starting to turn inwards individualism kind of suburban dull lives and that even though it's kind of autumn it's so harsh because it is this ice storm and there is this incredibly tragic turn towards the end i love that film ed i haven't seen it in such a long time joan allen like what a powerhouse oh yeah she's fantastic in it it's got uh sigourney weaver's great in it got like just an amazing amazing cast there i think that's you know i can't i i I don't know if i would say it was ang lee's best movie because it is so bleak it's not one that i feel i can rewatch that often (laughs) but it's certainly one of the ones i feel is like the most powerful and the one that like i think really kind of gets at his really 
incisive ability to kind of like really dissect human nature which he also does in like eat drink man woman and the the wedding banquet but there there's like oh these are nice movies <laughs> no one no one dies horribly you know like so so it's it's always interesting seeing someone you know making a movie outside of their kind of like their homeland they're all in their adopted homeland of the US and you know kind of like turning their eye on american society so kind of like caustically as he does in that movie mm. and using you know thanksgiving which is associated with you know sort of such warm feelings as family as a way to dissect that stuff is you know really affecting you know it could be just like pure irony and just kind of like you know oh isn't it funny how all these people's lives are falling apart at the times when they're all being pulled together oh how droll mm. but like he like I think really kind of draws a lot of kind of like pathos out of it in a way that doesn't feel, you know, kind of too arch or too sappy. Yeah. Other kind of uh, movies I had, well, it, really in terms of when I was thinking of movies, I suddenly realised that a lot of my movies on my list were Wes Anderson movies. Mm. Even though I'm not sure if I could like pinpoint exactly when any of them take place at any time of the year, but I feel like in spirit so many of his movies feel like autumn to me because of the color palette particularly in something like Rushmore which I think has a real kind of like earth tony kind of look to it but also in theme like so many of his stories are about people or families or institutions that are kind of past their prime and that to me has kind of like a melancholy introspective autumnal feel to it that sense of like you know summer's gone winter's lying ahead we're in this period where things are kind of in flux and that really seems to kind of be a spirit that hangs over i think a lot of his movies like pretty much his entire output at this point though if you if you look at even something like the life aquatic where there's that real sense of like yeah this boat has seen better days <laughs> the crew are all interns who are indispensable like there is that i think there are all those that there's like just such an autumnal feel to things like that even if you know they're on a boat in the middle of the ocean and it's bright sunshine most of the time for sure i think there's something quite um collegiate about wes anderson's films <clears throat> and i think maybe from like rushmore in particular and something just really clicked in and i feel like bottle rocket is the same as well and there's this sense of kind of the autumn of these people's lives, whether they're actually, you know, late middle-aged or not, that is the sensibility. And I think having that sort of sense of the academic calendar as well, like that's where everyone mm. gets together and, and begins. Yeah, feel that. Also knitwear, I think knitwear is key. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, in terms of uh, other knitwear heavy films, uh, I had Harold and Maud on my list. Oh, as I one love those, I feel. Harold and Maud. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah such such an incredible movie very you know as that, that speaking of wes anderson immediately beforehand you know when i watched harold and maud for the first time i was like oh i get it now <laughs> i get where he got a lot of his ideas not to you know say that wes anderson just rips off uh hal ashby obviously he does lots of other things he's got lots of other influences but like that was one of the ones where i thought oh this is kind of like the mode this guy is operating in you know like autumnal colors everyone in you know kind of very incredibly dry sense of humor kind of like dealing with bleak subject matter in a very funny way and again just like you know everyone walking around in incredibly nice 
knitwear as evidenced again by the poster or the DVD box, which is just uh, Ruth Gordon and Bud Court kind of like just standing, looking off to the side, wearing incredibly thick coats, which just kind of like st- uh, screams this movie is taking place in October, <laughs> whether or not it actually is. For sure. I feel that way about Wonder Boys, which mm-hmm. oh, yeah. is stunning. And yeah. I one of my favourite films growing up, and Anya Jeremko Greenwald has done this really beautiful long read about it called Even This Late It Happens, looking back at the film and it, like talking about I mean, she opens with Wonder Boys is a story told in earth tones and academic textures, cashmere turtlenecks, mm. warm russet bookshelves, dirty snow lining campus sidewalks, a faded pink chenille robe. But the funny thing is, is that I think technically Wonder Boys is actually set in sort of early spring, late winter, because everyone's sort of come back from a Christmas break. And, right, yeah. and yet to me, it feels so autumnal. And mm. I think there is something about so much of it is that color palette and everyone kind of hustling inside and being together and that kind of i don't know sort of intellectualism i think i i love wonder boys for so many reasons i think that it's such a boozy film as well <laughs> like, mm-hmm. yeah um has that aspect to it and uh, sideways as well a little bit in that sort of hazy late summer early autumn but I think mainly it's a lot to do with like lots of middle-aged people who are like, oh, wait, we need to actually make some decisions about our lives and take responsibility. But I think Wonder Boys is just so great and funny and quite real and plausible. Like, it's not... It's wry rather than arch. Because, don't get me wrong, I like bits of Wes Anderson, but sometimes it can just really grate on you. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think there's something about movies that have that kind of, like transitional or liminal feel to them which i think are also what maybe distinguish them as feeling like autumnal movies like where there's that sense of like people being in a space between different phases in their lives whatever that may be if it's like having a crisis of confidence or if it's you know facing down the possibility of of dying and things like that and i think that that is one of the things that really stands out in things like like Wonder Boys like that like an autumnal film for me maybe almost feels like a Raymond Carver short story where it's like you know it's kind of a normal day but then something happens and that thing you know has this kind of like transform uh, has the possibility of a transformational effect on someone's life but you may not necessarily see it in the movie it's more a sense of like oh someone's kind of like paths to diverge and they're going off in a different way which is kind of what I love about Wonder Boys as well. It's like you get a, a glimpse at the end of the new direction that Michael Douglas has been kind of like shunted onto after this like kind of extremely kind of like bleak period of his life. But you know, there's not that sense of like, oh, everything's fine now. Mm. Like, he's still he's still the same person who you know drank too much and blew up most of his personal relationships. Yeah. I also I think I associate a lot of melodramas with. Uh, with autumn I think because mainly if you you look at like 50s melodramas like All That Heaven Allows you know a lot of those Douglas Sirk kind of movies like they often take advantage of those really rich colours that you get in the autumn to kind of like provide a backdrop to 
these kind of like very heated stories of emotional turmoil or you know obviously um todd haynes's far from heaven which you know is obviously a yeah an homage to those kind of movies made many years later is a movie that you know has a lot of kind of rich reds and oranges and things like that and i think that that's really just kind of an entire visual palette and approach to filmmaking that sort of died out a little bit in the the, the 70s when things got and the late 60s where things tended to get a little grittier but you know i think like a lot of those kind of movies from that era which also you know you get a lot of movies in the 50s and uh, 40s which are all about like upper middle class or you know kind of like just upper class people in new england who are having problems which are all kind of again lend themselves to that kind of autumnal feeling of storytelling it's like you know these people who live in these incredibly kind of lush tree-lined parts of the country and it, particularly if they're in color and technicolor as well which really does bring out the vividness of those colors you get a real sense of like of of the passing of time of that era uh, of that time of year and particularly you know if they set them in that part of the country the hours is a big one for me as well actually mm. thinking on what you're saying there and i think that mix of new york clearly sort of in in the cold and the country setting of virginia wolf's um house even though i think julianne moore's storyline is actually and again kind of thinking of the far from heaven i think it is in the summer but to me the hours is an incredibly cold film and i don't know whether it's because i it's actually i saw it when it came out and it came out um on christmas day funnily enough um right you know festive but i guess it's that kind of the the esteem of a literary adaptation as well i think there's something about curling up with a book and it's the cinematic equivalent of that if it is an adaptation yeah and i, I think also like we are conditioned at this point to expect like the good movies to come out in the autumn like yes. you know that's when all the prestigious movies or the movies that are going to be considered for awards contention come out and so i think there is certainly in my mind like i think like oh what's a what's not a movie like i don't know manchester by the sea but like you know that's not especially oh, autumnal it's just that it happened to come out at the you know kind of like late autumn early winter and you know but again it gets that to the thing of like is it set in autumn or is it just set in new england problem where <laughs> you know it, it just has that feel and i'm pretty sure that one you know thinking back on it now i think it takes place in the dead of winter because so much of it is casey affleck just shoveling snow and being absolutely fucking miserable <laughs> um for good reason that that character does not have a good life but um yeah I, I, that's a factor in it as well because i know when i was looking up lists of autumnal movies to kind of see what were some suggestions online that was like one of the ones that there, there would be movies coming up so i don't really feel like that takes place in the autumn it's like oh no it's just that it came out in the autumn because that's that's when the good heavy movies come out mm. um a- another movie that kind of came up in my research that i hadn't thought of in literally decades um but which again i think has that kind of autumnal feel to it largely through the visuals and particularly through the poster is the movie stepmom oh with uh, yeah. Susan Sarandon and Julia Roberts, I want to say, are both in that. Which, you know, is kind of like a very sad melodrama, is, is, but is, and again, kind of like falls into those kind of like genre, I guess, or visual trappings of like, you know, like it's incredibly 
warm and has like a coziness to it even though the story you know goes to some very heavy places and i just remember when that coming out when that came out like even just looking at the the poster which again is like all very kind of like oranges and yellows and browns all just kind of looking at that just kind of makes me want to put you know put on a sweater and drink a hot chocolate which is not necessarily the feeling that i come away from watching that movie with yeah and a film that i saw recently and was really like i thought was remarkable is makeup which is the debut Mm. feature from claire oakley she wrote and directed it and it's set in cornwall cornwall now the location of lots of interesting english filmmaking thinking of bait as well Mm. um and it's set in a holiday camp uh, like a static caravan park and everything's being shut down and to me it is the truest autumn you'll ever see in terms of England because it's not this kind of cosy rustling fall of new England Mm. old England is like grey and dreary but it's not quite cold enough to be (laughs) winter but it's the kind of holiday season is shut down and it's everyone who's left kind of turning the park over and it's such a remarkable film in terms of how it uses genre and that it manages to make so many twists and turns over like an hour and a half. I thought it was a really accomplished, striking film and I'm really excited to see what Claire Oakley goes on to do um, because it manages to weave so many different kind of genres together in a way that I genuinely haven't seen before in terms of how things kind of build and are dropped or kind of resolved but that to me was like oh yeah this is this is autumn to me (laughs) this is what I Mm. recognize but nothing particularly cozy about it some great knitwear though that has to be stated yeah I was just trying to remember the name of some British film that I watched a couple of years ago which was like all about a woman who has to go back to her family farm because her dad died and that's like one where so much of it takes place in you know like the middle of the English countryside very very similar to the sort of areas where I grew up and it was all very kind of like grey and cold looking and like just you talking then might be like oh yeah that's that's what autumn is to me (laughs) you know in kind of a in an English sense like oh yeah like the leaves change and they fall on the ground but then it's just slush (laughs) and and then that's that's kind of it you know you don't get quite the uh fiery beauty of Central Park in the uh in the fall it's more just kind of like oh everything's uh slightly different color but it's all still a little bit kind of like miserable as shit (laughs) God's Own Country as well, I think, thinking of Sludge. Mm. Also, top knitwear. I'm starting to see the theme, Ed. Yeah, yeah. Uh, other recent movie, of course, that had top-notch knitwear, uh, Knives Out, which oh. also is kind of a very autumnal movie. Big time. Uh, let me see if I can find that movie. Are you think is it The Leveling you're thinking of? Yes, it is The Leveling. That's exactly what I was thinking of. Thank you. Because, like, I was just... In my head, it's like, is it The Calling? No, that's something else. Yeah. Uh, no, yes, you're right. The leveling was that was the movie I was thinking of. Uh, that that definitely felt like a very English autumn, even though again I'm not entirely sure if they state what time of year that movie uh, takes place. But yeah, that's that's yeah. I, I guess what we're 
realizing we discussed this is when we talk about autumn films they're almost all <laughs> movies in america because they do autumn right like they've got the climate for it where autumn just does look lush uh in a way that it never really does in uh in england the last movie that i kind of had on my list of movies where i as soon as i think about them i just think oh yeah autumn is uh where the world things are oh the, yeah uh, Spike Jones adaptation, which is so filled with scenes of, you know, like the main character Max and all of the various world things running through, you know, like uh, forests where all the leaves have fallen off. And it's got this incredibly kind of like gorgeous, rich, earthy color palette to it. And it's again like a kind of transitional movie about a young boy, you know, kind of escaping into fantasy because of the problems in his kind of home life and about you know kind of like maturation and leaving things behind and uh, spike jones does such an incredible job in the visual style of that movie and the visual language of that movie of kind of suggesting uh, a sense of change occurring and i think so much of it lies down to it having this kind of warmth to it in in the the color palette you know kind of making the world of the world things seem incredibly appealing to a child Mm. but also having again that edge of coldness to it all as well you know of like you know kind of like winter coming and things changing again so we'll end this episode as we end all our episodes of shot verse shot recommends which we talk about a piece of culture that we've enjoyed and we think you listeners will enjoy as well emily what have you got to recommend for the listeners this week well funnily enough it's makeup ed because if i am correct it is still on bbc iplayer for a little while because it looks like BBC Two and iPlayer have done a deal with sort of British films, you know, sort of through the BFI, um, British films that would have been released. They're giving them their premiere online. And I think it's still up for a little while, so I'm going to push for makeup again. And as soon as uh, you can get your hands on it in whatever territory you're in, I cannot recommend it enough. Sweet. I am going to recommend The Venture Brothers, which obviously we talked about several weeks ago and just announced the show was cancelled. I have been working my way through the latter half of the series uh, since then to kind of like catch up with some of the stuff I hadn't seen. Uh, I've reached the last season of that show and uh, it's made me all the sadder that it may or may not continue. I, there's rumblings that it might come back at HBO Max, but who, who knows? These things are always uh, very much... Uh, up in the air until they eventually happen but uh, I've just been bowled over by how good that show is you know I always liked it when I would catch the odd episode like late at night on uh, Cartoon Network but I back in the UK but uh, I'm just really impressed with how funny it is with how kind of consistently interesting the world building is how just inventive it is overall how sad it is you know like everyone talks about it as a show about failure mm. but like how it really digs into that theme as it goes along and yeah it's just i'm just really continually impressed by just how much resonance they managed to find out of you know what initially starts out as you know hey what if we did like an adult johnny quest you know kind of <laughs> a story wouldn't that be fun for like years later to them to, to have all of these characters feel like rounded people with their own flaws and their own problems and you know their own kind of like inner lives that feel palpably real is just so impressive to me and i'm really glad that i finally made the time to watch the show in its you know in its entirety whilst also now joining the legions of people who are really bummed that the show may or may not be over. So 
uh, here's hoping for positive developments in that uh, direction but otherwise i just recommend to people check out the venture brothers it's a really great show and uh, people should uh, check it out if you've enjoyed this episode of the show then please subscribe to us on itunes stitch uh, player fm spotify all the usual places races reviewers and recommend it to your friends it's the best way to help us grow our audience you can also find us on facebook and twitter where we are at srs underscore podcast we'll be back next time with something entirely different until then it's goodbye from me and it's goodbye from me